Well, friends, I know that there's a truth in this world that no sooner is something beautiful created than somebody messes it up. I I witnessed this this week at home. Uh, I was in the kitchen with my two daughters, one's three, one's five, and the three-year-old was talking about some funny things that she liked to eat, and the story was going on kind of long, and just for a moment, I stepped out of the kitchen, um, and all of a sudden, I heard the older five-year-old daughter say, Daddy, look what she did to my picture, and she brought me this picture that she had colored in school learning about the pyramids, and it was really good for a five-year-old. It was hanging on our refrigerator. She brought it to me, and there was a bite taken out of it. (laughs) And I thought, oh, man, no sooner does somebody create something beautiful that somebody messes it up, all right? My daughter's in good company, though. You know, when Leonardo finished the Mona Lisa in 1503, it, too, has suffered at the hands of those who wanted to mess it up. Four times, it has been vandalized. One time, somebody threw acid on it. When they repaired that and brought it back, somebody threw a rock at it. Then they put it behind bulletproof glass. And even then, when it got moved to a place in Tokyo for a while, somebody angry at the museum spray-painted the Mona Lisa. And then when they got that all cleaned off and restored and back at the Louvre, a lady from Russia who was angry that she was denied French citizenship bought a coffee mug in the Louvre gift shop and threw it at the Mona Lisa, damaging it once again. No sooner does somebody create something beautiful in this world, but finish it with me, somebody messes it up, right? If you don't get it, that's what I'm saying so far. Somebody creates something beautiful in this world, no sooner is that done that somebody messes it up. Who's the greatest artist? Or we go from my daughter to Leonardo, arguably a step up there, but not much, to the ultimate artist, the ultimate artist, Jesus Christ. And you may say, I didn't know he was an artist. Well, start by looking around this room at all these faces. And I don't say that lightly. I say that truly. Look at the display of the artist's touch around you in each person that's here today. But did you know that Jesus has given us two pictures? Truly, he's given us two pictures that we are to bring up and remember all the time here at West Park Baptist Church and in any local church where you go. Do you know what those two pictures are? They're not gonna appear here and here, okay? So you don't look there. And they're not intended to be pictures that we look at on screens. Neither are they pictures that we hang up in the back of the church and kind of forget about. These are living pictures. On the one hand is baptism. Baptism is a picture that Jesus has given us that portrays something about him and his sacrifice. On the other hand, it's the Lord's Supper. Another thing that Jesus has given to us that portrays something about him and likewise about us. If you want to know about the Lord's Supper, refer back to a message I preached some weeks ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where I tried to clarify what it means for us as a local church to remember the Lord's Supper together. Today, I'm trying to round out that picture by going back to 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, and today we're going to talk about the picture of baptism. Every time someone up here goes under these waters and comes back up, that is a living picture of grace. It is a live action scene, not something that we capture on film to just put and say, this is what baptism is. No, each person baptized is a picture 
of the living grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that best happens right in the local church. And today, the theme that I want to talk about is baptism, if we try to define this a bit, baptism is an individual's commitment and a local church's commitment to obey the Lord Jesus Christ as a united family. On the one hand, you have an individual involved in baptism. But before you think that you only get one shot at having anything to do with baptism, look again at the scriptures and you'll realize that if you are in a local church, you too have a responsibility anytime that someone is baptized. You may not be up here in the waters with that individual, but nonetheless, under the Lord Jesus Christ, who is painting this picture right in front of us, we have a responsibility to respond to him accordingly. So this message today, it will touch on certain ways that even baptism, as Jesus has painted it, has been messed up. In Corinth, it seems like the typical thing, once you introduced anything true or good or beautiful to the Corinthian church, they messed it up. All right, so this letter of 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's response to this church based on a letter that they had written him, asking him some questions. But they asked him the questions they wanted to ask. They did not come out and open up about the particular struggles that they were having that Paul starts with. All right, so in the text that Debbie read for us this morning, verses 10 to 17, Paul is talking there right off the bat about some divisions in the church that the Corinthians had not bothered to tell him about. Paul is in Rome writing this responsive letter to the Corinthians. And as they receive it, they find out that where Paul is, there's a woman named Chloe who apparently has sent some business partners into Corinth to do some trade. And they've gotten to know the people in the church and they've gone back to Rome reporting to Chloe, Chloe, there's some, there's some stuff going on in Corinth that I don't think the Apostle Paul knows about. And so it's not gossip, but it's concern that Paul receives this information and then doesn't talk to other people about it. He goes right back to the Corinthians and addresses it. This is the biblical pattern. So what is it that was so messed up? I mean, he had just said in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this talk that he starts off with, Corinthians, you have everything in Christ. You are complete. You lack nothing. You have all grace but you're really messing it up, all right? So this is the Apostle Paul's tone as he addresses the errors that have brought disunity, and it's centered on baptism. This isn't our typical text that we go to to talk about baptism in the local church, but I don't intend this message today to be a dry, systematic theology-type message, but as an appeal to us at this local church to have the right view of what God wants for us as we pursue this issue of the living picture of grace together. So here are the four points that we'll do. And I'm going to turn off this fan. All right, thank you for 
being patient there. Now, four points that I think will help us in the frame that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us to see the right portrayal of baptism. Baptism, in the first case, portrays a church's family unity. We're going to talk about that. In the second, it portrays the believer's, that individual believer's commitment to Christ. In the third place, it portrays the local church's commitment to the believer. And then finally, it portrays salvation, but it cannot save. Crucial point there at the end. So let's begin with number one. As I said, Paul was just praising the Corinthians, but then in verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just a a note here that's actually down in the footnotes. When the Bible says brothers in a place like this, the ESV it puts a number one there or whatever number it is. And in, in the pew Bibles, or I'm sorry, we don't have pews here. In the, the Bibles from the seat backs in front of you, what we have available on page 952 is this description that it's actually addressing brothers and sisters. So whenever the word brothers is used by Paul here in the ESV, it's actually saying everybody who belongs to Jesus Christ, man, woman, or child, okay? So he further bases his appeal to these people in the church that, and he deliberately calls them brothers and sisters. Oftentimes, it's helpful in my family to approach two of the kids if they're fighting and squabbling or all of them fighting and squabbling and and to remind them, you are related. That's a good thing. You can't change that. Somehow we've got to work this out. In my best of times, I might say something like that. The issue is they may be saying at that moment, I don't want to be related to this person. (laughs) If a little kid could articulate it that much, that's what they're feeling. And I think that's what was happening in Corinth. These people did not particularly like being in the same local church together. We found that out in 1 Corinthians 11 when they were saying, you know, the upper crust celebrates the Lord's Supper inside the home The lower crust, working class, celebrates the Lord's Supper out in the the portico, the porch. But we're not going to get together. That's just too far for us to bend in the social strata. Well, the Corinthians loved to follow the hottest teachers of their day. They loved to identify with those who they regarded as the most eloquent, the most refined in speech the most clearly articulate in their delivery of God's wisdom. Because after all, this was their culture. This is what they would base their whole identity on. And it went so far, Paul even mentions, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize many of you people because otherwise you would say that you were baptized in the name of Paul. I mean, this was an issue in Corinth. The entry into the Christian life, they looked back and they saw who it was that most appealed to them who helped them to understand the message. And then likewise, after they were baptized, they so identified with that person that they were baptized, in their view, into the ministry of that person. And it created these divisions in the church that definitely were not acting like brother and sister. In one sense, it was a fighting brother and sister type relationship, but it wasn't the unity that was theirs and that the church should be showing through their baptisms. Now, I want to look at two things here. First of all, I want us to think about how baptism brings individuals into a particular family. All right? In one sense, this is true. The pattern in this church 
was seen in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there, but I want to reference that chapter several times. If you want to know where the, the, the church in Corinth got its start, you go back to Acts chapter 18 and you read. Uh, it started with Paul going into the city after his time in Athens. He's in the province of Achaia. And he's been in Athens. That did not prove very fruitful. And after a few Sabbath days there, uh, ministering in the synagogue and preaching on Mars Hill, he went instead to Corinth. When he got to Corinth, he had a warm reception from Aquila and Priscilla. They were Jews who had been kicked out of Rome when the emperor said that all Jews had to leave and get out of Rome. So here they are in Corinth. They've set up their tent-making business. And Paul, being a tent maker, identifies with them and sets up shop there so that he can make money to support himself and go preach in the synagogues the message of Jesus Christ. He does this for quite some time until he begins uh, to receive opposition and abusive speech from those in the synagogue. And he says to them, uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. This is his way of saying, I'm done preaching here. I am innocent of the blood on your heads. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so he went out of the synagogue really far away next door to Titius Justice's house where he set up shop and continued ministering and preaching the gospel. So the, the ministry was so effective that as it tended to be under Paul's preaching, many believed. In 1 Corinthians 18, uh, verse, I'm sorry, Acts 18, verse 8, this is how the church family in Corinth was built. It says, many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed, important order here, they heard Paul and, were, and they believed and were baptized. That's a crucial order. They believed the gospel message that Paul preached and then they were baptized. So what happens as a result of that? Well, the baptism didn't just put them out in Nowheresville. They're still in Corinth, but now in Corinth, they belong to a local church. The baptisms that, that they were talking about in the local church, they were making a big deal about the teachers associated with the baptisms, but that was not what should have been emphasized by baptism. The thing that should be emphasized whenever someone is baptized is that that person is now a member of that church and they belong to Jesus and they belong to you. That's what it should mean. There are no hoops to jump through in order to be baptized. You don't have to become more spiritual. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins and calling out on him as Savior and Lord. And then you get baptized. And that is the entryway into a local community. And this points to something. It points to something even bigger than that, which is the source of the unity. But nonetheless still involves a type of baptism. You know, when Paul gave this letter, he didn't just speak and then, well, I should say it this way. He wasn't sitting at his MacBook typing it up, all right? The way that the Bible was delivered to us in the case of the Apostle Paul's letter, letters, typically he would be there speaking what he wanted to go out, and somebody would be there listening to Paul and writing it down. So sometimes Paul would begin a subject, and then later he would pick up on it again, as we tend to do when we speak. So I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 just for a minute, 
and see what Paul says there about baptism and our unity as a local church and why it's so important that when someone gets baptized, what that always shows us. In chapter 12, he's talking there in a sustained way about how the church is a body together, how we actually have moving parts that work together in a way that brings glory to Jesus and encouragement and instruction and refreshment to each person there. But that all happened because of a baptism that doesn't involve water at all, but that the water of baptism points to. What is that baptism? It's even greater. Well, verse 13 of chapter 12, Paul says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Amen indeed. Now, what does this mean? Well, when you became a believer, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. So let me explain a little bit differently. When you repented of your sins and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, at the very instant that in genuine faith you confessed him as Savior and Lord and felt the sorrow of your sins, at that moment the Holy Spirit baptized you into Jesus Christ himself, into him, into all of his benefits into a relationship that includes the fulfillment of all he has done. Each believer, and this is why Paul says to every single one of these baptized believers, all of us who went through this, the greater reality is we were baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Our unity runs even deeper. The baptism points to it, and it points to the greatest reality that we are Christ's people set aside to do his will and to approach things his way. So when we put the picture in the frame that he's made, we want to portray that every time a baptism occurs, a great thing happening here is that our family testifies to its unity and to its Lord. We are Christ's people and we do things his way. Now I want to say Before I move on to point two, I want to talk to you who are here today. You would say that you do believe in Jesus, but for some reason or another, you are not baptized. I would say in the New Testament, as you trace it through the book of Acts, following Jesus' command to go and to make disciples and to baptize them, from that point on through the book of Acts, the New Testament knows no such thing as an unbaptized believer. There's no such thing as an unbaptized believer. There's really not. And And I want to emphasize that, an unbaptized believer. So if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and then were not subsequently, after that belief, baptized, then that kind of stands out as an unusual situation. The Apostle Paul, when he saw the light on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, Uh, Then three days later, he was sitting there wondering if he was ever going to receive his sight again. And a guy named Ananias was sent to the house. And he said, Brother Saul, I've been sent here to tell you that you are to be a light to the Gentiles and that you will preach the gospel to them. And then he says, now, rise 
This is Acts chapter 22, verse 14. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That order, rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul was already converted, but Ananias wasn't speaking heresy. He wasn't saying, get baptized so you can be saved. But what he was communicating was this, Saul, the entryway into the community of Christ and under his lordship, he commands is through baptism. It's so synonymous with your profession of faith that to not be baptized is not right. Get up now, let's baptize you. And Paul did. Paul never speaks negatively about that comment from Ananias. In Acts chapter 22, 14, he's actually reporting that in the council that's trying him. And he says, this is my testimony. He says he was baptized. So my friends, wherever you go, in the book of Acts especially, uh, it's, it's an abnormal thing. It's not, it's not common to see a believer who is not baptized. So to you, I want to send out an initial challenge. If you are not baptized here today, I want to ask, well, why not? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you have not become baptized, what's holding you back? Consider what I say in the rest of this time. And I would say that if you're waiting for a nudge, it's already there. A believer who is not baptized is an unheard of thing in the Lord's economy. But there's something that we need to know. Baptism in the second place portrays an individual's, uh, a believer's commitment to Christ. And I mean an individual here. On the one hand, baptism is a very individual thing. Individual thing. Look at what Paul says again back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says some things here that really seem to downplay the importance of baptism. In this point, I'm not focusing on those things. I will explain them, God willing. But what I want to focus on here is what he says in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? To each one of these questions, we are to give a resounding, no way. Right? Is Christ divided? No way. How could it be that Jesus, as a a Lord in his human body, is split up and sent out to different churches? Now, we're all to be one body in Christ. His next question, did Paul, was Paul crucified for you? No way. Jesus was crucified for me. And he says, a little bit closer to home to these people, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Some of them were saying, yeah. Yeah. And he's saying, the answer is, no way. Why is this no way? Remember when Jesus said, go, in Matthew 28, make disciples. Then he said, how do you do that? Well, the first step is to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That word name is singular. And then he he lists three names. What does that mean? Well, when each one of us is baptized, we are baptized under the authority of God. Who saved you? Was it Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? It was God. One God in three persons who are totally for you to repent of your sins and to lead you to him. This is our God who loved you so much 
that the Son came into this world and died in the place of sinners, dirtying himself as if that was even possible, depriving himself of the glory to which he was accustomed so that he would enter the mess that we made out of his creation and of our own lives and to die in our place. An individual testifies to this thing every time an individual is baptized. We believe that happened. We believe in that Lord. We were baptized in his name. The, the power of that comes out when Paul does reflect on the people that he did baptize. And I, and I just want to mention them here because it's beautiful anytime an individual's name is mentioned in the New Testament. He mentions three names, Crispus, Gaius, and Stephanus. These three individuals were among the early converts that Paul was able to lead to the Lord. He's going to say in just a moment, he's glad he didn't baptize anybody else. The reason that Paul said that was because the unique nature of his ministry was to go into a city, preach the gospel, establish churches, and then leave and do the same thing again in another city. Paul didn't want to settle down in one place and have all of those people there say, Paul's really our pastor. You that he appointed here, you're not really our pastor. Paul's our pastor. That's the last thing Paul wanted. And so one of the ways that he ensured that would not happen is that when he went to a place like Jesus before him, and like the apostle Peter is known to do, Paul went in and established elders and pastors to baptize those in local churches as they came and believed. They would then be baptized. But he did get to baptize these three individuals, and their stories are all unique. Crispus was, according to Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 8, he was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. Remember that same synagogue that Paul left and said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going next door to the Gentiles. Well, something must have happened either then or when he was with the Gentiles because Crispus, over here in charge of the synagogue, believed and he was baptized. Gaius is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. Paul mentions Gaius in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, because at that point, he is not there. Um, I, sorry, earlier I said Chloe was in Rome, that Paul is in Rome. He's actually in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. I was getting my things mixed up. Paul was staying with a man named Gaius when he first initially was doing this work in Corinth. And Gaius had opened up his home to the local church there, but not before he himself believed and was baptized. And then Stephanus is mentioned and his family. Now, there's a whole controversy about whenever the household of somebody is mentioned as having been baptized. You know, I have good friends who are in uh, Presbyterian or even Bible-preaching Anglican congregations, and they would say this is dead set proof that when a household is mentioned in the book of Acts that it means babies were baptized too. Um, there's really no proof of that, but that's not the point of my sermon. I go back and forth with those brothers. Uh, I believe they are in the realm of, of faithful uh, teaching of God's word. I just think they're wrong on that point, okay? Um, if you're in that category today, come talk to me. Um, like I do with those brothers whom I regard well and love in Christ, uh, we'll have a fun exchange, okay? And I'll do my best to point you to God's word. Um, Stephanus. I didn't mean that to be funny, but. Uh, <laughs> Stephanus was one of, was, 
he said, among the first to come to know Jesus in all the province of Achaia, where Corinth was located. And he became a part of the church and others in his home. Paul says that they were busy in that region and that people should know them because of their service to the body and to those who were in need. You know, when you're baptized, that's just the beginning. When you come out of the water, that's when the business starts. That's when the work of ministry begins. And Stephanus is held up as an example, as an early convert who was baptized, who's out there serving and doing so joyfully. And that's the testimony of what local churches do. And those are individuals that God gives to his church. And we need to celebrate that. So an application here. Um, Baptism is a sign that an individual has gone public about belonging to Jesus. And that's the the key there, gone public. We, We need to consider that. One of the things that I can remember is 15 years ago, working in a small church in Ohio, um, I was there as, as an assistant to the pastor. And one of my tasks was to reach out to troubled youth. And we had a boy that started coming and we picked up and brought to church and then he, he, he became real part of us. Um, he received, it seemed like he received the good news of Jesus and was real sorrowful for his sin and just committed to be with us. In time, as I was trying to lead him, to befriend and disciple him, even just to goof off with him and understand him better, I encouraged him, hey, the next step for you, really the first step after coming to Jesus is to be baptized. His response at that time was, as just a young teenager, I'm not quite ready for that. I didn't press it, but after a few more weeks, I brought it up again and I said, you know, buddy, it's time for you to think about baptism. Really, that would encourage the church, and it would be a great sign, and we would know, hey, this young man belongs to Jesus now. We would celebrate that. His response at that time was, I'm not going to do it. And shortly after that, he stopped coming to church altogether. Now, in some cases, what I see, and and I really did not push this young man, but what I've seen happen from time to time is that when someone is not truly committed to Christ, they will not go through with baptism. And I think that's probably fairly true. When someone is not truly committed to Christ, they they will not go through with baptism. But what does Jesus want? A pastor named Bobby Jameson wrote in his little book called Understanding Baptism, Jesus wants a spotlight trained on his disciples so that the world sees him reflected in us. Baptism is how we step into that light. You may be a believer here today and you say, I've become a believer. I do want to testify to that somehow. Does that mean I have to go down to Market Square and preach? Does it mean I have to go into my my school cafeteria and stand on a table and tell everybody I'm a Christian? In one sense, Jesus has made this fairly easy on you. Come and be baptized and show us here that you're genuine and your profession. I want to talk today uh, to a couple of groups in this point. There are believers here and you have been baptized. I'm encouraged by that. And what I want to, to encourage you with is this. Your initial commitment to Jesus, you can't outcommit Jesus. He was already so committed to you. Your step of obedience in that way and response to him was because he had in every way committed to you, his life, 
his death and his resurrection life and continues to hold you fast. May that point of commitment that you made now be the launching pad and you view it that way as a life of continued enjoyment of relationship with Jesus. All right, now, for those of you who are here who wonder if you were baptized, maybe it was after your baptism that you really became a Christian. All right, so maybe you had some profession of faith and you were baptized, but then it was after the fact of that baptism that you think, it's probably at that time that I was really saved. What do you do? Well, there are three categories that I'll speak to on that. First of all, if you are viewing this and you were an infant when you were baptized, I'd say the answer to this question, should you be baptized, is yes. Yes. I, I don't view infant baptism anywhere in Scripture in any way as a sign of the covenant of the Old Testament. When it talked, if you have been taught this, when it talked about circumcision now being replaced by baptism, and that's why when babies were circumcised, we baptized babies in the New Testament. The corollary there is spiritual circumcision of your heart. That's the tie from the Old Testament to the New. So when you get to the New Testament, baptism is the outward sign of a believer who has come to Jesus. So if you were not baptized after you believed on Jesus, the next step for you is to be baptized. Now, if your parents baptized you as an infant and you're worried about dishonoring them, I'd say that it might be true that the actual honoring of those parents would be you testifying as an adult through baptism that their initial commitment to pledge you to the Lord is now true and you actually are the Lord's. That could be a great honor to them. And I want to encourage you with that if that's your case. But I think in a Baptist church, what we might have is people in other categories. Um, so what if you believe that you were baptized and prior to that you made some profession of faith, but you, you're really not certain that that profession of faith clearly identified you with Jesus or that you really repented of your sins? I want you to be careful here. None of us can ever repent enough of our sins, okay? The, the, the question of was it enough, that's not a helpful question to ask. The better question to ask is, did you come to Jesus? Or was your baptism based on your parents assuring you that you were saved and pushing you into it? Or you yourself wanting to be identified with the benefits of the church and feeling pressure that if you weren't baptized, they wouldn't celebrate you. All right, that could be the case. Be careful here, but it may be that if your motive was anything other than following Jesus and coming to him truly, that baptism probably wasn't following a true conversion. And I think in that case, with wisdom, talking with us here as pastors and leaders in the church, let's work that out to try to figure that out. Um, I myself was baptized two times. As a, a kid, I made a profession of faith and was baptized. I really didn't think that as a kid, that was really real. But I had so many doubts throughout my life. When I did, as a young adult, uh, I believe truly yield to Christ, I was then baptized after that. I wondered coming out of the water, 
would I feel different? Would it, would it feel more spiritual? Or would I feel the grace dripping off of me as the drips fell off? No, I walked out to the parking lot that day kind of wondering those things. And a lady from the church I was in came up to me and, and she just said, you know, I'm so thankful that God is so gracious that he's prepared you for this day. Even before you knew him, he was, he was teaching you about himself. And this is the culmination of you yielding to him. And I just thought, well, that's what this is about. It's not about me getting it all right. It's about yielding to the one who all my life has been pulling me, cajoling me, loving me, speaking to me, ministering to me, and yielding to Jesus. Friends, you know, each of us have moments where we wonder, was that faith enough? Well, the point is, did you come to Jesus? However weak your faith was, each of us has moments where we wonder, what, what was I thinking back then? Certainly, now I'm saved. You know, even C.S. Lewis, we all kind of, we can have various opinions about that fellow, but he did write some really good books. He wrote Mere Christianity, and he wrote one called The Four Loves, in addition to all the Narnia books and things he wrote. What happened to him? Well, he describes an experience after writing The Four Loves and after you doing those radio addresses of mere Christianity to defend the Christian faith, where he said, now I think I actually am saved. Was he saved then or was he saved before he did those things? Well, I think what he realized was each of us are going to experience times that feel like greater growth as we go. And I appreciate Pastor J.D. Greer. Um, he's over in North Carolina. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, so whatever he writes must be good, all right? He wrote a book. I just say that facetiously. He's a good author. He says, stop asking Jesus into your heart. That's a book he wrote. Stop asking Jesus in your heart. And you say, well, how could a Baptist pastor ever say that? I'm not going to amen that. Well, the point of the book is how you as a believer can get off this treadmill of wondering if your faith was ever good enough or your repentance was ever good enough. And in the case of dealing with people who are wondering, should I get baptized now that I really feel like a Christian? This is what he says. If you are walking with Jesus now, see your initial confession of Jesus as Lord as the first evidence that God had planted the seed of life in you. The point is, did you go to Jesus? Did you yield to him? Not perfectly. So then he says, the validity of our faith is revealed not by the intensity of our first reaction to it, but by our perseverance in it. So for you now, it's not fruitful perhaps to go back and repeat a first step of obedience, but to remain faithful now. He goes on to say that if you're really still kind of wrestling with this, the point is when you get to heaven, you won't be relegated to a should have been baptized again status off in the corner somewhere. The Lord doesn't work that way. In God's timing and how all of this works out, I want to encourage you that if you think your initial response to Jesus was one where you did believe in him, then don't put yourself on a treadmill of doubt, but trust still in that same Savior today and go on to greater things in the Lord's power and strength and do those things, serving him through serving others. Um, all right, so... The third and fourth points, let's go through in the next nine or eight minutes, all right? So point three, Jesus still in the frame is rounding out our picture of baptism. Well, in the third place, baptism portrays 
the local church's commitment to the believer. You know, that's why, again, the Apostle Paul says what he says in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you. And then he remembers some as his memory went back to those early days in Corinth. Again, why does he say that? Because his goal was not to heap up a bunch of disciples under his name. His goal was to preach the gospel and see churches planted and elders serving and leading and deacons ministering in places that nobody expected that to happen. When we see somebody baptized up here, we as a local church should commit in several ways to those individuals. How should we commit? Let me give you some things quickly. First of all, we should commit to affirm the believer's profession of faith. Now, how can we do that? Well, speaking uh, for just a moment about some policy, we've talked a lot about the 2020 vision, and there's an aspect of that that concerns the congregation. What does it mean for the congregation to go into the year 2020 and actually grow in biblical obedience as a congregation in serving one another? What does that mean? One of those things is how we view baptisms. Right now, the baptism, when it happens, someone comes and shares their testimony with us as pastors and as deacons, and we hear it. And if that is a true testimony, as best as we can regard it, we can't see the heart, we affirm. And the person is baptized, and you clap. All right, what we're talking about is, as we move into the future, for all of us to take responsibility, we will receive someone into our body who wants to be baptized. And we will, in some way, with you, celebrate by sharing that person's story so that those who are members here and are committed to one another, we can hear that and we all can affirm. And we all can do that for a reason. What's that reason? Because in the second place, we commit to lovingly hold each person accountable to what they said. You know, how can you do that when the first time you see a new believer is up here? Well, you can. You can pursue that person and you can establish relationships with them and you should. I should. But we need to know them and to be in the process of their life. So those are the first two things. In the third place, we commit to fully immerse the believer in water. I'm a Baptist pastor, I had to say that. All right, so what does it mean? Well, baptism comes from the Greek word that does mean to immerse or submerge in water. Now, think about this for a minute. If we commit to immerse the believer in water, what we're committing to is we're commit to holding that person completely underwater and then bringing them back up. All right, I sometimes joke with people who are going to be baptized and you gotta trust me, I'm a, I'm a smaller guy that I actually can get you down there and pull you back up. I'm glad when Pastor Sam does it. He's a taller guy. Most of you in this congregation, if you came to him to get baptized right now, he could handle you. For me, it's an exercise in trust <laughs> that when I get you down, I'm gonna be able to get you back up. Somebody I even made the mistake of dipping and I think that had to still count, right? He was fully under the water. Now. Is the point that how we do it, how we dip, how we, how we submerge, there's not a formula for getting that right, but we believe it's that way because of what it portrays. 
And I'll get to that in the last point. Number four, and lastly in this section, we commit to know and love the believer in the context of covenant relationships in the church. What are covenant relationships? Refer to our church covenant. What's that? Well, get a copy of our constitution and bylaws and read that. Where can I get that? Well, contact me anytime. I'll send you one. Uh, but come to our Life at West Park class. All of what I just sound may sound boring, but it's actually very life-giving, not just informative, but it tells you what we believe about our relationships here at the church. Now, I don't think if we look back that most of our problem here is trying to identify with a leader that we want to baptize us. I don't think most of you who have been baptized by Sam Polson say and run around the church saying, we follow Sam Polson. I was baptized in the name of Sam Polson. Sam wouldn't want that either. Maybe sometimes the closest analogy we can get to this is we think that a place is particularly special, whether that's your 78-degree swimming pool, whether it's the Tennessee River or the Jordan River. None of those places are as good as right in front of the people with whom you walk out relationships in the local church, wherever that place may be. All right, in the last place, baptism portrays salvation, but it cannot save. The last thing that Jesus wants in the frame is to point to the living picture of each person getting baptized and saying, that person in the water, they're not getting saved right there. I've already done that work. This living picture is of a person who already belongs to me. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is a wonderful thing that Paul said because it always reminds us that baptism doesn't save, but it portrays salvation. The Apostle Paul would often point to baptism and what it actually portrayed about salvation. And I think that whenever someone is baptized here, often case maybe they have an unsaved family member or several unsaved family members who come and join us. And it might be for those people the only time they come to church. They come because they want to see what happens and celebrate the life of this individual. They may not know what it means, but they may have some idea of what they think it means. But unless they know what it really means, they won't get the message. And this is an opportunity for them to get the message because each baptism preaches the gospel as long as we make sure that it's understood to be the gospel. So what happens? Well, consider Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 6. Paul writes there, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So my friends, the the gospel is shown in vivid, living color. What is the gospel? Well, in the first case, Jesus really died for sinners. That's why Paul says, 
Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? When the individual goes under the water, under the water is a place of death for humans. We can't breathe under there. It's symbolic of that which is outside of our control and what, what awaits us. Nonetheless, it was Christ who paid the penalty of that death. And when the person is brought back up, the pastor and the leaders will say, raised with him to walk in newness of life. We now stand as resurrected people with a resurrected Lord who ministers truth and healing and hope, and he all our lives long commits himself to us in those ways. So the thing to get to today is how will you respond? How will you respond? Each week, we include the bulletin insert inside your bulletins. You may be taking notes on the back of it. Um, I write these things as a service, I hope, and to be a help. I included two questions in the apply section. When you go home today, I, I challenge you to talk these over with people that you travel with or someone in your family or a trusted friend here at church or your spouse. Have you been baptized as a believer by being immersed or submerged in water? Describe your experience. If not, well, how has this time in God's word influenced you about what your next step should be? What are you prepared to do? And then in the church, what should our role be in someone else's baptism? Should we sit there passively? Well, what should you be thinking, remembering about the Lord Jesus? And what should your role be toward that person who's being baptized? I hope that this has brought some clarity to us and shown us the picture of what the Lord Jesus intends through baptism. Um, pray with me now as we respond.